morning to you. Welcome. Yeah, my welcome added to it. I'm a visiting preacher here these few weeks. I'll be with you through Easter, and so I'm very happy. I was standing down there singing, and uh, I have kind of an unusual job now. I, I work alone out in uh, a lot of acreage, oh, probably about 150 acres or so, and uh, I do a variety of things. I get around that uh, 150 acres, and there's just nobody around. And, and that's a good thing for all of those people, because I... Do you remember the songs that we sing on Sunday morning, like almost all, you know? Well, I do, and I sing to the top of my lungs. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just to sing of God's great salvation, hallelujah, and, and just, you know, not worry about the raccoons or the birds or the squirrels who really are put out by that. Um, I, I just, I appreciate the worship that goes on here. Yeah, I do, I do have kind of a strange job. I'm the curator of a museum now. Uh, I didn't see that coming. Obviously, the Lord did. I have a PhD in history, and so... I'm, I'm really enthused by many of the things that I'm learning. I learned some pretty strange things. I, sometimes I could be carrying around a, a medieval sword or a, a Roman gold coin or a machine gun. Uh, we have a variety of, of machine guns, probably the most popular of U.S. fully automatic machine guns is the M60. Now, everything I'm about to say to you, at least in the next 30 seconds or minute, I hadn't had a clue a year ago or two years ago. But the M60 is a fully automatic machine gun that shoots about 650 rounds per minute. So it's, it's a powerful machine, and it can get pretty hot, and so uh, you have to change out barrels and do kinds of things to make, it, make sure that it works. The Germans, actually, though, were better at constructing the the fully automatic machine gun. Um, they have an MG42 that shoots two and a half times faster than the M60. That's somewhere around 1,550 rounds in one minute. That's like 25 rounds a second. That's really fast. A lot of people say that it sounds kind of like when you just tear a piece of material. Just like that. You say, well... Okay, where are you going with this? <laughs> Actually, when I read the end of Paul's letter to 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of like one of those fully automatic machine guns. I mean, in, in, the last, in the last 13 verses of Paul's letter of 1 Thessalonians, there are 11 different paragraphs. That is usually... A paragraph contains a... A single thought, usually. And in the Greek New Testament, the, the letter ends with one after another. I mean, you heard Keith last week try and go through those kinds of verses. Boom, 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 boom. And that's kind of my analogy to the machine gun. It's like one after another. And if you looked over it a, a little closer, you could see that pretty much any one of those could be a sermon in themselves. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. I mean, 
All of those are just great thoughts, but they come firing one after another until he gets to where we are today. I'd like to read these verses and then pray. There's kind of a big U-turn, at least in some sense. Let's look at verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, through the end of the letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us from these verses, shall we? Lord, we do sit at your feet. We pray that you would teach us in this closing paragraph or so of this letter what you would have for us here in a place called Boynton Beach. We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's my point there in that introduction. My point in the introduction is that all of a sudden, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. And, and now he gets to the place where he says, well, in my translation, in the ESV, it says now. Now, there's a little teeny word translated now in our Bibles. It's the, it's the word that's spelled D-E, and it's pronounced just death, death. And sometimes in the New Testament, that word is translated now. And sometimes it's translated but. And I actually prefer the but in this case. It's not a hard but you turn it's kind of a soft aversion uh, to reverse course just slightly in this passage of scripture that we're looking at in these whatever it is five six verses um, I see about four different things that he's talking to them about in those paragraphs and so I'm going to preach four different sermons in one I'm glad to hear that great response. Yeah. Uh, okay, not really four different sermons, but I'm not really going to try, try and tie them together in points with one point. I want to just take the text for the way it sits in front of us and say, uh, you know, uh, let, let's see what the Apostle Paul has said to the Thessalonians and what he has to say to us. And so after this rapid fire... Um, uh, of commands. The letter probably has about 30 commands in it. They don't always come in imperatives. Sometimes they're just instructions. But the letter has about 30 commands in it. Interesting, Paul's pattern is to go about halfway through his letters with just indicative statements about truth and then starts giving his instructions. He does that here. The first command in Thessalonians doesn't come until almost the end of chapter 3, and mostly they're just in chapter 4 and 5. And so once again, they're, they're kind of this rapid fire that's coming. But here at the end of the letter, he, he kind of backs away. Uh, surely there are some things that he's, he's challenging them with, but at the very outset he's saying, I want to say something to you here. 
It's not you who do it. It's God who does it. And so that's the reason that I would suggest to you the first word in 23 instead of now should be but. I mean, try that on for size. But may the God of peace. Now who's the focus on? Me, 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 me? Or now's the focus on God? And so I would suggest to you that here it would be better translated but. This is not a command here, obviously, but it's really God. God is saying, it's me who does it. I noticed that one of the Bible studies here going on, I think Julian's teaching with somebody, I see it right here from here, is Jerry Bridges' pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. Listen, folks, if you don't have a copy of it, this is just a parenthetical thought here. Probably, it's certainly in my top ten that ought to be read every year. Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And there in the introduction, I believe it's part of the introduction, I, I've said this for years because I don't know that there's anybody who says it more succinctly. He uses an analogy about the farmer. He says uh, of the farmer, the farmer, uh, he, he obviously tills the soil, he fertilizes the soil, cultivates it in the way that, that he should, and he does all those kinds of things. But the farmer, the farmer can't, can't bring the rain. The farmer can't bring the sunshine. The, the farmer can't make that grow. And so Bridges says this, the farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. Now breathe for just a second, because I'm kind of—I'm lost. So I'm sure you're lost. Well, I'm not really lost. This is what I want to say to you, and I hope that you want to want to hear it. Do you struggle from day to day about? Am I growing in the Lord? Do I know Him more today than I did yesterday? Is, is there progress in my life? The biblical word that we've been using in Thessalonians has been sanctification. That means to grow in holiness. And Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And here in this little introduction, I believe Jerry Bridges is encapsulating the struggle, the challenge, the tension. When you don't do what you think you should do, you're feeling the guilt. When you do uh, what you think you should do, you think that God is loving you a little bit better than he did before. And this tug of war just continually goes on and on and on. And I really like the words that Bridges uses, and so I want to tune you in on these, and we'll go back to the text and see it there. But I want to tune you in, and if you don't, again, have pursuit of holiness get it and read these words for you but he says this about the farmer yet if the farmer does not do the things this is what he said if the farmer does not do the things that he should do till cultivate fertilize etc if he doesn't do those things and here's the key word he cannot expect a crop now that's a good it's a very good word that's why i'm calling your attention he can't expect the crop. He goes on, as I've already said. So therefore, the farmer cannot do what only God can do. 
But here's the other words that are, are very key. In, in fact, I would suggest to you, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon today, get this out of this quote. The farmer cannot do what only God can do. We all know that. You know that. That's not any really big news to you. But then he goes on to say, and God will not do what the farmer must do. Now, it does not say, and Bridges does not say, that God cannot do what the farmer must do. This is very important. Come on. It does not say that God cannot do what the farmer must do. For, in fact, God can do it. In fact, God does it every day. When's the last time we had to plant a, uh, even an oak tree? Look how stout an oak tree is. God does it all the time, without a farmer at all. So my point simply is, the farmer can't do what God must do. I'm going to add, but God, even though he could, will not do what the farmer is required to do. That's our text. That's our text. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But you don't see that in this passage. Instead, you see, if I may, but may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, look at that, he who calls you is faithful. Can I underline it? Because the text actually underlines it. He will surely do it. And there you're back in this tension again. You see that going back and forth. It's a real challenge. This is the kind of challenge I actually, maybe even since I, I, I'm a little passionate about it, I started that sentence, I'll say it again. This is, this is how I started the Christian life. And in some sense, maybe it's still how I'm running today. But I distinctly remember it when I was a very, very young Christian. I would hear people standing in pulpits like this, and they would be talking, and they'd say, you know, salvation is of God alone, and there's nothing you can do to earn it, no works that you can do. Or, or from Galatians, uh, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. And hear these sermons, and I'm sitting there saying, okay, there's nothing I can do. And then the next thing out of the preacher's mouth is, here's what you need to do. You know, whether it's walk an aisle or pray this prayer or that. And I was so confused. So very, very confused. Until I started looking at the Apostle Paul's testimony. Now listen. I'm not making any sense. I just really want you to get this. I think that the Apostle Paul's perspective in the, these two verses, for faithful is he who has called you who will actually do it, comes from Paul's testimony. Say it again. The fact that he's saying it's not in your power, in your strength, but faithful is he who has called you who will surely do it, comes from his testimony. Do you remember Paul's testimony? Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's actually on the road to be counterproductive if, 
that's not a strong enough word, 180 degrees against the church that he's writing to now, but he's 180 degrees moving in the other direction to persecute them, to bring charges against them. And what happens? Um, he meets somebody on the road, and they've got a good argument for Christianity, and thinks about it, runs it through his Jewish philosophy. No, not what happened. God knocked him off his horse, blinded his eyes, and spoke to him from heaven. Who did that? I mean, there's, there, there's no human hand that can touch that and led him in to Damascus where he baptized Eyes came off out into the wilderness. Who taught him in the wilderness? God alone. No man. Read Galatians. That's his testimony. No man did this. And so he comes to this time in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And I believe he comes to it from his testimony, from his own experience. Let If he could look at each person like I could look at you right in the eye and, let, and say, let me tell you something. God is faithful. God will do it. Whatever you're going through, whatever your challenge is right now, I want you to know God is faithful and he will surely bring it to pass. And Paul is saying, that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me. In some sense, I'm passionate about that because that's the same thing that happened to me. You know, I'm, I'm a single guy in a growing town like Orlando, Florida in the young 70s when, you know, we're just doing anything and everything that we want to. We're all a group of narcissistic hippies running around just, again, doing anything we wanted to do. Of course, if you worked at Disney, you didn't have long hair, but other than that, it wasn't much of a difference. And uh, we were just having a great time. Just have party every day, every night. Party, party. Ski in the day, party at night. Just doing these kinds of things. And a group of young people invited me to a home Bible study. Sitting around talking about this Jesus business and this Bible business. And, and I had a I had a Bible back in my little duplex living alone. Didn't have electricity. So I was reading my Bible by candlelight. You couldn't make this up. It's true. Reading my Bible by candlelight. I was in John chapter 15. I didn't understand anything about the Bible. I'm reading this thing, though, about a, a vine, and it's got branches, and if the branch is not connected, it's broken off and thrown into a fire. And... I, and by the Spirit, I believe today, but then I just said, well, you know, wow, I'm not connected. I'm not connected. I know I'm not connected. And I didn't know anything to do but what I'd heard other people say. And, and so I, I got out of that bed where I was reading, and I got on my knees, and, and, I, and I said, God, would you be boss of my life? I, said, I, didn't, even, I didn't know enough Christian language. Lord, be my own. I know. I just said, would you be boss of my life? And do you know what he did according to Acts eleven eighteen? Now, this is important. Do you know what he did according to Acts eleven eighteen? He granted me repentance. Now, why is that so significant? You're sitting there wondering, 
Because if I were to say to you right now, as much as you may or may not know about Christian theology, if I were to say to you, who's supposed to repent? You would say to me, well, repentance is something that, I mean, when you talk about that farmer, that's something that I have to do. And I wouldn't completely disagree with you. But I would hasten to tell you that that will not happen apart from the grace of God who grants that as a gift. Surely He will do it. So friends, if you're living the Christian life by trying to repent every single day in your own flesh, you are really pushing a rope up a hill. Repentance is a gift of God. Surely He will bring it to pass. He is the God of peace, and He will completely sanctify. I actually think, and this is just sermon number one, I actually think that he's reaching back into the letter and making sure that you understand this. Watch. Now may the, or but, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you holy, completely. Who's doing the work? May the God, see? He's completely doing it. And may your whole spirit and soul and body. Now we get into the controversy of Thessalonians. What's happened here? These people have died. Their body is in the grave. I don't know what's going on with the spirit. Maybe there's some false teachers that have moved in and said, Ah, you guys are thinking that the Lord's coming back. Well, maybe he's already done it and you've missed the train. All, All kinds of teaching that may be going on during these times. And Paul says, Let me tell you what. You will know it because God will sanctify. That is, he will complete. You remember what we talked about? Sanctification. You have been sanctified you are being sanctified and one day you will be sanctified in this case he's talking about the will be may god come and you will be completely sanctified and not just in if i may the greek philosophy of the day of ethereal things let me tell you what your body will be sanctified your soul will be sanctified your spirit will be sanctified you will be sanctified completely Oh, but Paul, you don't know how hard this is for me to do. I mean, I repent every day. Oh, stop the, stop the presses right there. He who calls you, he is faithful. He will surely do it. And, and that's a very important fr- phrase there. He who calls you. What, what's he actually saying? Well, when do you get called? When do you become a Christian? You become a Christian. <laughs> I know it's kind of silly to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. When do you become a Christian? You become a Christian at the beginning. <laughs> you become a Christian at the very start. That When he calls you. So faithful is he who calls you. That is faithful. Well, like Philippians. He who did what? 1-6. He who began, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? That's the same thing here. He who calls you will surely do it. I wish I could come to you and say that every single day and get you to look in the mirror and say, you know, today God's going to do it. I'm so grateful that today God's going to do it. Surely God is going to bring it to pass. Surely he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Yes, he will. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Before you begin believing that this final objective depends on something you do, recognize that it was God who called you, and it's God who will bring it to pass. That ought to be liberating. Oh, wow. That doesn't say I'm not without responsibility and accountability, but God promises to do it. Sermon number two. He goes on then to say in verse 25, Brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. Wow. In my meditation on this passage of Scripture and thinking about this and thinking how wonderful these first two verses are and thinking to myself, all right, now, Paul, Paul, come on. Uh, by the Spirit, Paul, tell, what exactly are you trying to say to these Thessalonians. What, what's, what's going through you? What are you trying to get across to them? Uh, because here you're saying, God will do it. Now I need you to pray for us. God will do it. Now I need you to pray for us. And surely Paul's not seeing any contradiction there. I think that in this case, prayer is more than just sometimes it's called talking to God, but it's hey, 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 hey we're in the trenches together we're, we're, we're down here in this thing together brothers, pray for us, it's more of a communing aspect it's communing dependence on his character and purpose brothers sisters I know we're going through persecution I know there's some doctrinal confusion going on uh, among you. And now I need you to pray for us. It's communing dependence on God's character. All right, that's a lot of maybe verbiage there. What do you mean? Well, I go back to the first verse that he said. Now or but, may the God of peace. May the God of peace. I think that he's calling upon the Thessalonians in their times of confusion, challenge, maybe persecution of different kinds, which are contradictory to peace, contradictory to peace, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us that the God of peace may do the same. Pray for us that the God of peace may do the same thing in you and in us. And we're communing in expressing our dependence on God and upon his character to do it. God of peace, do what you do. Bring peace. In some sense, um, I, think it's, I think it's Pratt, I think it's Richard Pratt that says this, that, that the gospel can be wrapped up in some sense in that word peace. There's no longer hostility between man and God when God invades his life and grants him repentance and changes his heart and he comes to know the Lord Jesus. What, what is, what, what's Romans 5 say? Now we have peace with God. Brothers, 
pray for us. If you believe God will do that with you, brothers, if you believe that, brothers, you're praying that God, the God of peace will do that among you, then pray that for us as well. To pray like this is to commune and to live in sync with God. To continually grasp a hold of his grace in this life, in this age, and with the perspective of that peace in the age to come. I say that again, it's very important. You do that instinctively, but I want to say it again. To commune with God, the God of peace, is to, I mean, more than that but one day he who said he'd surely do it all has done it all and you're you're going to be at peace in a way that you cannot fathom Pray in communing with the character of God. In this passage, he highlights the character of God. He's the God of peace. Pray for that, brothers. Pray for that. Number three, Paul says to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, I know you expect me to wax eloquent about all this kissing business. But the truth of the matter is, that's just a common expression. That's just a common activity. Still today, among a bunch of, of, of uh, cultures, I don't think that that's where the highlight needs to go in the verse. L look at it again. I think, I think that if you're going to underline a word, underline the second word. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Uh-oh, now we brought the context of 1 Thessalonians back up. Because there are some who are what? Remember the sermons from time? Some are, are not working. Some are not doing what they should do. They should be urged on to, to work harder, to apply themselves. And yet here, in the close of this, his injunction is to greet all the brothers. He's called out a lot of differences through the letter. In fact, he continues to do that we know that it's still a struggle by the time we get over to 2 Thessalonians. We had part of that read a little earlier. We ought to give thanks for you, brother. Uh, but here in 2 Thessalonians, there's somebody who's writing a letter, perhaps, maybe even writing a letter in, in my name, saying it's Paul who's writing it and trying to convince you that the day of the Lord has already come. He's already come and you missed the, you missed the boat. So there's this tension going on among the brethren. And Paul has the audacity to say, greet everybody. I could tell you in the life of a pastor, I know this is going to come as a shock, but you can't fire me now. <laughs> I'd be walking down that hallway out there like that. Oh, who's on the other side of the who's on the other side of the foyer? Hmm. 
that's never happened to you, I know. Right? Oh, may it not be spoken of by the household of God. Greet all the brothers. If you're sitting here right now and you've been through some conflict over these past few weeks and even months, and you feel like it's in your spirit and you're saying, man, I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to talk to him. I challenge you. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Receive that as a word of conviction from the Spirit. Even if you don't know what to say or how to say it, you know what you can say? The God of peace says to greet you with a holy kiss, to love you, and do that. Do that, my friends. Show that the grace of God is not just a phrase. I mean, if, 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 if grace doesn't show up at times like this, it's worthless. Where is grace? The grace that has been shown to me and to you at the cross, where is it? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know that's not grace. Last one. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. That word oath only used three times in the New Testament. And Paul is saying, I want you to put your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. Now it's very interesting to me that he's, he doesn't do this sort of thing anywhere else. Now it's close. Colossians, he does write to the Colossians and he says, uh, people of the church of Colossae, uh, I want you to read this letter and then I want you to send this letter to the people at Laodicea. And the letter that I wrote to the people at Laodicea, I want you to get that and read that among you. So it's not unprecedented, but his, his challenge, his adjuration, if I can say that, I adjure you, I cause you to take an oath that you'll read this. Not just that, though. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter. Here it is again. Letter to what? What? Same phrase. All the brothers. Who needs this? Everyone needs this. Everyone needs to hear the words, the instructions, the encouragement of this letter. Make sure that everyone gets this information very important to me. I do believe that Paul believes he's writing Holy Scripture. I think that he says that all Scripture is inspired. I, I believe that he, you know, like Peter says, that the Holy Spirit has carried along the authors, carried them along to write the Holy inspired Word of God. I think this is a key verse in the sufficiency and in the power of the Word of God. So I want you to read it in front of everyone. I want you to challenge everyone with the words of this letter. I've had the occasion 
to travel quite a bit and to meet some brothers and sisters and you know, all around the world. And one of the most encouraging, um, one of the most encouraging spiritual encounters is to greet and to see some of the brothers and sisters that I've seen before. I, I'm particularly thinking about in Chad and in Africa. And, and I'll go one year, maybe I'll skip a year, and then I'll go back another year or maybe two years later, and I'll meet and I'll greet those same brothers and sisters and to see what God is doing. And friends, there are some hard places in the world, but I tell you, Chad is one of the hardest. And to see the joy that's going on among these people and the encouragement that they have in communing together and praying with for one another and, and just running this challenging race together. And I, I think about the Apostle Paul in that light. What do you mean? Well, the Apostle Paul's in Corinth now. Uh, he was in Thessalonica, as you've heard many times before, but he had to flee. He got to Athens. He sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica. He went down to Corinth, waited for Timothy to come, heard about them, and he says, I want to come see you. There's this communing aspect. And when I think about that and the challenges going on, I think about our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. You know, Sandy and I sit around a nice house now. We're still not going hungry. <laughs> and, and, and we just, we remark uh, multiple times every week about how good God is and how great he is to us. And, and I look at the letter of the Thessalonians and Paul encouraging more and more. And then I look at Boyntonians, you sitting here right now, and you should be encouraged more and more as the brothers and sisters right here, knowing that you are a part of a bigger thing out there, waiting for that glorious coming day of the Lord, along with people all over the world. And then our hearts are broken for the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian church, and the things that are going on there that we should pray for. And so... I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to see a, a short little video here, and then I'm going to give some instructions about the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray that we would embrace the instructions of your word, not so individualistically, but collectively as the body of Christ. Collectively as the First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, yes, but even beyond our thoughts of being here and, and, and taking these words of yours, taking it by an oath and receiving it as your work in the world, I pray that you do it in Jesus' name.